Welcome to Taking Back Birth, a podcast for women who know the truth about birth and those who want to explore the path of radical birth love. I'm your host, Marin Green. Taking Back Birth celebrates the power you have to make decisions in alignment with your own truth. Decisions not subject to anyone else's authority. Decisions that create experiences that will change your life. Taking Back Birth is a production of the Indie Birth Private Contract Association and IndieBirth.org. No material on this podcast should be considered medical advice. Birth is not a medical event. Good morning. It's Marin here and baby Rumi, who I think you'll probably hear making sweet little cooing sounds, <laughs> at least at the moment. But he's going to hang out and do what he does and probably nurse and sleep. I really wanted him to be here with me during this podcast because I want to talk more about his birth story. And maybe even if I wasn't talking about that, he'd be here. But it feels special to have him laying here on the bed, uh, being witness to more of his story and see how it goes. So we are about five weeks postpartum. And if you haven't, a great primer to this podcast would be to read his birth story. You probably have if you're listening, but if you haven't, please do that because this won't make any sense. Otherwise, I'm not going to rehash the whole story in chronological detail, but the address there is indiebirth.org forward slash Rumi Soul, R-U-M-I-S-O-L. And that is his birth story. Uh, We call it the time I had a free birth at the hospital, the indie birth of Rumi Soul. Following that, if you're an avid podcast listener, you've probably already heard Margot and I recorded a podcast here on this very same bed in this very same room, just a couple days after his birth, talking more about it. So you might be wondering, why are you still talking about it? And to that, I say, purely for my own use. (laughs) So I love our loyal fans and listeners And this is kind of a peek for you into a deeper story and my own experience. But truly, this podcast is for me. It's for me to process more. It's for me to, come here, little buddy, have an outlet to um, share more so that I remember because I'm still in a lot of ways in that post-birth haze that if you've been in, you know, does disappear. So I guess what I'm saying is I want to have some of the details down for myself, things I won't remember in the future. And maybe Rumi will want to listen to it. I have no idea. But it's not really to prove anything to anyone or to share in any other way, except as part of my private sphere, which you are welcome to be a part of by listening. Um, I will probably go into some of the details and sort of clinical explanations just because I think that's fascinating. But for the moment, at least, uh, we'll see when this goes to, you know, final production, so to speak. (laughs) But I'm calling this behind the scenes, uh, the magical tale of Rumi Soul. All babies are special. All of mine are special. They've all had really fantastic stories And I think that's no accident, just being in the birth world. um, I think one of the things that I came away with from his birth, especially, is that we're given what we need, especially 
if we're in the birth world, we're given what we need to serve ourselves and our babies and our own path. And then I know it's no accident that I got to experience what I did because I walk with women and I know it will be valuable. And I guess being five weeks postpartum, those are the kind of things I don't quite know yet. So, you know, just being honest about that, I don't have this all figured out. What I do know is that Rumi was my 10th baby coming Earthside, my 13th pregnancy, and his birth was probably the hardest thing I've ever done. And therefore, one of the biggest teachers that I've ever had. And I don't feel like this was an ordinary experience. And here's where I guess... I'm going to think that and and no one else needs to necessarily. And that's, oh, there's some pooping going on here. Oh, man, you might get to hear me change the diaper and the whole thing, depending. Rumi has uh, the common newborn habit of pooping right out of his clothes. So this might be something we need to take care of. We'll see. Um, Let's see, what was I even saying? Oh, just that I think the ultimate lesson is kind of ironic because here I am telling more of the story, but sort of the ultimate lesson was that this is so my story. This is so our story that I think I'm struggling to still find words to be able to communicate it. Um, Like I said, both for my own safekeeping of listening in the future, maybe, or just wanting to share it with people. Um, It's really been hard because the whole thing, his whole pregnancy, his whole birth kind of felt like I was in this other universe in a way, this other bubble. And I just am still not sure how to communicate that. So what did that teach me? Well, so many things. But in I think walking with other women, it's taught me that birth is primarily a spiritual experience. And these aren't new beliefs to me, but it took it to a whole new level. So yeah, there were some like physical factors in his birth. But ultimately, it was an initiation. It was a vision quest. Um, You know, insert whatever sort of new age phrase you want to use for totally shaking things up and shifting my world. And so if I experienced that, which I did, then it changes how I even am going to sit with women. So I was just blabbing about this to my husband, who, of course, has to hear all this stuff first. (laughs) And yeah, it's, you know, here I sit on call ready to witness a couple of women having babies. I'm so excited about that. But I thought, what has it changed for me? While this, um, I think I have even less desire to fix or change someone's experience. And you know, I don't know that I had a great desire anyhow, but as a midwife, we think we have skills and we, and we do, and we learn stuff and we might be able to, especially in hindsight. And I, and I'm doing this with his birth, um, you know, say, Oh, they were maybe in this presentation and blah, 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 blah. And, you know, these were the mechanics that were at play. And that's also fascinating to me, but ultimately I guess, 
the highest view is that we can't really change someone's experience. We really can't. And believe it or not, I wouldn't have wanted mine changed, you know, if that were even possible, because I wouldn't have learned what I learned. Um, we together, Rumi and I wouldn't have had the soul experiences that we need. So, you know, I'm definitely, um, wrestling is sort of a strong word. Like, I don't know. I don't know yet how it'll change how I sit with women, but I know that it will in that way. You know, how can I use the skills I have, the intuition I have, the observations I might make? Um, how do I use those in conjunction with my highest realization, which is this is this mom's experience. I can't save her. Um, you know, it kind of is what it is. So obviously, you know, those two things are sort of balanced. If you're a midwife, I mean, you're not just going to obviously like sit there with your back turned and say, oh, well, it just is what it is. Like I'll be called maybe to say something or to suggest something. And that all still feels like part of her spiritual path if I've been invited there. So these are such big ideas in a way, and yet they're so simple. But the spiritual journey is something that I know is true. I really do. And especially for the women that will come to me. I mean, not everybody sees it like that. You know, there are women that are like, eh, I mean, babies just come out, you know, they're not, they're not needing or wanting to view it this way. And that's totally fine. I just feel like the women that come to me will, on some level, be in agreement that a spiritual journey is what we're on um, during this process. And we may never understand another person's vision quest, right? We're not really meant to. We're not. We can hold witness to it. We can support it, um, right? But we're not really meant to understand it. And this is a concept that I've definitely played with over the years. Um, you know, I can think of one client in particular who had a very difficult experience at the end of her pregnancy. And long story short, it wasn't until many months later that I received other details from her and the partner about things that were going on in their life and like sort of these other things they hadn't really disclosed. Um, and in that moment, it's like a light bulb went off. And I thought, Marin, <laughs> you know nothing. And I say this to myself all the time in the best way. I know nothing. I know nothing. And I especially know nothing about someone's whole life experience. Like even when we're close to women, um, even our best friends, right? We only know what we know. And so I think I can hold respect for that. And, you know, with birth experiences sort of remain even more detached perhaps than I was, I think in the best way that I can't really understand her experience. I can't really understand why it would happen this way, but I have to trust it's perfect. And that's exactly what his birth was for me. Um, obviously, you know, I think people looking in and again, I mean, how could any of you really understand my experience? Here's me trying to share more so that maybe you could, even though it's sort of impossible. Um, but you know, people that are sort of less dedicated to maybe even listening to this, if they saw the blog post or whatever, um, definitely, you know, might make assumptions or, or think, 
I don't know, like I've heard all kinds of stuff just because, you know, I do put my life out as an offering. Um, all kinds of stuff like, oh, that sucks. Like she's a midwife. That must have really been awful. And uh, people making assumptions about, you know, oh, well, do you wish it had happened differently? Or like, do you wish this or you? Um, no, I don't. You know, I don't. And that's not to say I haven't worked through a lot of the emotions because it was a very emotional experience. Um, you know, but in the end, I do not have any regrets. And I know that it couldn't have been any different than it was. So, you know, I've lived that. And if I really believe that, and that's something I kind of keep coming back to, then I hold that for other women as well. Um, and I think, I think that's a really good thing because I think, um, you know, when we don't have as deep experiences and we're kind of new to things or maybe we're learning or we're just like more naive or sort of immature, um, we have this view that, um, let's see how to put this, that if someone had done something different, you know, they could have changed what happened. And well, that's a loaded discussion and I'm totally changing a diaper here. He's very calm during most activities, including diaper changing. He is an absolute magic soul here. Uh, anyway, I don't even know what I was saying exactly. See, I got distracted by diaper changing. Um, anyway, I think it was more just like this, this other, this more immature view, especially if we're attending births as like a student um, or whatever. And we feel like, oh, well, that mom totally like, if she had just done this thing, you know, then she would have, she would have done it or you know, sort of judgmentally kind of stuff. And I've been there. I've thought that. And now my view has changed. You know, I feel like I don't have any judgment on it. Um, do emotions play a part in our experiences? For sure. But it's less of a view that there are bad emotions, right? So we're all sometimes caught up in like, what are your fears? And like, oh, she must have been fearful. Um, yeah, birth brings up fears and they can play a part sort of positively or negatively in an experience. But I guess I have less desire to, I mean, I mean, how do I even put it? Like help someone conquer their fears? You know, I mean, yeah, I do what I can, especially prenatally, but I feel like then it is what it is. And fear is not a bad thing. And you know, we just have such a label on all of it, really, all of it. Whereas the highest vision, and this is what I feel like I got to experience, um, was just tuning in to what I needed and trusting my body, which is a whole other podcast, because what does that even mean when your body starts doing something really wacky, like trying to push a baby out when it's not time, um, and trusting him and trusting that he needed this story. This wasn't only my story. It wasn't like only my everything, my manifestation, my fears. It was ours and maybe even more so his. So that's my really long winded way of saying that that's how I see things now even more so. And we'll see. We'll see how it develops as I continue to witness women and, and 
how I feel like my role changes and, you know, what I can offer people and what I can't. Because I do think, again, there's sort of a limit to what we can offer someone, you know, because it's their thing. So I'll stop with that theme for now. And let's see, this is totally going to be a blab. I have some notes, but Rumi is here with me and we'll see how it goes. Um, well, so to kind of start with the pregnancy, which definitely was part of the birth, I think I've said in other places that Rumi was kind of a surprise. And let me explain that because it doesn't mean the same thing to everyone. All of our kids were desired in the sense of, I always know when I'm ovulating. I've never been confused about that. I've never been surprised. You know, it was always like, oh, yeah, we welcome another. And oh, here they are. And with Rumi, he definitely was welcome. You hear that little buddy? He definitely were welcome. But I was surprised still by just the timing of it. So that's what I was surprised by. You know, I'm 43. Jason's 43. Um, I don't know what declining fertility necessarily looks like, I guess, yet. But I just didn't have very high expectations, honestly. After Cove's birth, I mean, her birth was so easy. And that's a whole other thing. Um, my brain was feeling like, okay, that's cool. That's a good place to stop. But my heart wanted another baby or felt another baby. So there wasn't a conflict, but there was just like different energies going on mentally and what I was feeling and not funny, but that ended up being sort of the whole theme of his pregnancy and birth was feeling versus thinking. And that was something I just learned so much about, but it began with his conception feeling one way, thinking another, and without going into, you know, all the details of a conception, um, it was just surprising. I didn't think I was going to ovulate for a while. And then it sort of happened with, you know, less days in between um, when we had sex than, you know, than I expected. So on one hand, I guess it's not surprising, but it just felt surprising. And, you know, when my period was due, I was totally expecting it like 500% didn't have one doubt in my mind, it didn't seem to make any sense. And Jason was the one to say, I think you're pregnant. And I laughed. I was like, that's absolutely insane. Really, truly, like there is such a low chance of that. You know, and if you look up even fertility stats for people in their 40s, it was like 1% or something. So you're the 1%, Mr. Rumi. And he totally wanted in, obviously. So I was just shocked. And I remember talking to my friend Amber about this, who she does a lot of like um, counseling for my clients. And I occasionally do counseling with her. So shout out to you, Amber, if you're listening. She's really wonderful. But um, I did a session with her kind of a little bit into the pregnancy around 14 weeks. And that's the time that we had our miscarriage. So really in every pregnancy since, I just have needed extra support around that time of loss. And what came up in the session was just this feeling of surprise um, and how that was sort of impacting my emotions and, 
you know, how the loss was a surprise and, you know, just kind of this, this actual feeling, this sensation. And so I think that's really interesting because his birth really had the same feeling of like, what, what just happened here? How could this be? And I think that's kind of been your MO, Rumi. I don't know why. And it's not a bad thing. But there's this element of surprise and mystery about him. And he likes to sort of like reverse whatever you think is possible. Um, even in being a boy, I totally thought he was a girl, which was another thing. Okay, let's get some milk and continue on here. Okay, you're enjoying this story? You enjoying it? He's such a sweet boy. Uh, so yeah, and I think overall, if you're kind of a birth nerd like me, that's something to consider. Um, I'm sure it's not 500% true, but the energies of conception are so often the energies that remain for the birth and maybe beyond that, you know, maybe he'll continue to kind of add mystery and surprise. Um, but yeah, the energy of the conception was that and that's exactly how it went the whole time. So that was a huge part. And around seven weeks pregnant, so kind of backing up from that 14 week mark, um, I had this very real dream that the baby in me, the seven week baby had died. And it was so realistic. The only other time I've had a dream like that was when Sable died. Um, I had the dream a couple weeks before it was so real. I woke up crying. I thought it was crazy in a way because at that point he was still alive. And then, you know, he did die. So it freaked me out that the dream was so prophetic. And I don't think every dream needs to be, but there was something so real about that one. So when it happened in Ruby's pregnancy at seven weeks, I was very sure it was true. And I woke up and I was just distraught. Um, obviously, you know, I really wanted this baby and I felt like they were gone and I wasn't bleeding or anything. It was more just this like emotional and spiritual feeling of, yeah, this, this soul has left. So here's where you might think I'm crazy, but who cares? Sharing all the things. I do think the soul that was in there left. I do because something changed energetically. I can't even explain it. I had felt whoever was in there in those whatever number of weeks before seven, you know, what is that three weeks that you know, you're pregnant. Um, and it was this sort of strange energy, like, it just almost didn't feel human. It felt very odd. And I was just kind of aware of it. What, what was I to do? So at seven weeks, when I had this dream, which was very graphic and very grotesque and all of those disturbing things, um, I thought, Rumi, you know, I didn't have a name for him at that point, but I thought the baby had died. And I sort of prepared myself for what might come next. So I was surprised when the pregnancy continued. See, another surprise. And still kind of felt fearful, though, to be honest. There was just this like little part of me that felt like, was I being prepared to lose him? And, you know, honestly, that's a theme that carried through even even through the birth. So on one hand, you know, is that fear? Is that manifestation? 
Um, I don't know, but it was just a feeling. It was a feeling I carried the whole entire pregnancy that I didn't know if he would stay. And that was very, very hard. On another related note, there were lots of losses around me. And I don't wish that on anyone in their pregnancy, but it was what it was. I couldn't change it. Um, I could stop sort of like taking it on, which was another challenge, but so many losses, um, not necessarily even of clients, but people close to me or people that are kind of in our indie birth sphere would message me with news of their loss. And I appreciated them sharing it. And, you know, this is another topic. I feel so sad for moms who especially have had stillbirths that they feel like they can't tell anyone. They feel like they can't share. Um, And maybe they don't want to at that point. Totally valid. But I think there is a stigma and a shame around sharing that. So for better or for worse, I was the witness, um, even from afar, for a lot of people during this time that were experiencing loss. And I can't lie, it really did affect me. And it just kind of was always this, this thing in the back of my head, that was he okay? Would he be okay? Uh, And even in pregnancy, I was sort of hyper vigilant about his movements. I was almost neurotic about it. You know, I remember telling Margot a bunch of times, and every time she'd say something like, well, it sounds pretty normal. And then I would take a step back as a midwife and be like, oh, yeah, that is normal. But I, it's like I had these strange expectations of him to be moving all the time or, you know, whatever. And the truth is, he wasn't the biggest mover. He was, oh, he was average. <laughs> he wasn't like my last baby, Cove, who literally didn't stop moving for the whole time. Um, And he is more chill as a baby. So his pattern as a fetus was to have a couple periods of good movement, especially, you know, towards the end of pregnancy when you can feel him pretty good. Um, And that all felt really normal and good. But he would sleep uh, quite regularly at other points. Also very normal. But, you know, babies have different schedules. And I think I just had strange expectations which was another thread of this whole thing of feeling like, why do I need him to be different than he is? And that was the birth too. Why did, why, why would I want him to have done this differently? He did what he needed to do and he didn't need me (laughs) critiquing and judging it that it should have been different. So we had lots of practice with that during the pregnancy and something interesting about him was just in a spiritual sense, he would check out. And this reminded me a lot of my son Rune uh, they're very similar, and their names being similar is not an accident. Um, I had this sense all along that that Rumi's birth would be a little like Runes. And if you didn't read Runes in our book or online, he transported to the hospital in a helicopter after birth because he literally came into this world not in his body. Like he, his soul was just not there, and um, it was quite scary. So I had this premonition that Rumi's birth would be like Rune's. And I didn't know what that meant, but it felt like I was preparing for something really big. And that's exactly how Rune's felt. In fact, I remember, you know, this is 13 years ago at this point, the midwife I apprenticed with in preparation for Rune's birth. I mean, I must have said something to her here or there. And she said something like, 
why are you making such a big deal out of this? She wasn't the most compassionate person, by the way, but she had hit the nail on the head. She had picked up on like, why are you like over planning, why over prepping? This is your fourth baby, like chill out. And now that I've had that experience twice, I can only say either I knew something or, you know, I was just, I was prepping. I was prepping for something big. And my other births didn't feel like that, haven't felt like that. Cove, I don't feel like I had a worry in the world. And she just fell out. And, you know, I can think of Belgium's, my my fifth baby. Um, same thing. So what comes first, the chicken or the egg? I have no idea. But I knew Rumi's birth would be profound. And, you know, that's a hard thing, I think, when you're pregnant. And, you know, I had had this transport. I've had a loss. Um you know, you try to put your human brain around what that means and, and sort of like, imagine what that could mean so that you're not unprepared. But the truth is, there's so many variations. And it's just life, we can't prepare for birth, really, we can't know. So even when we have a feeling like something might be different, uh, you know, I hesitated to even label that as bad or that it would mean a transport. I mean, that's, you know, that's our human brain trying to control. So it it was an odd place to be, I won't lie, um, for all of the reasons that I've shared. Just lots of awareness of death, I think, culturally, too. And I've talked about that. I wrote an article on this uh, virus thing and being pregnant during that time. And that's a lot of what I shared there in that blog post was just feeling the cultural fear, you know, feeling the awareness of death. Suddenly, people walking around with masks and that whole thing, Um, That really just was shocking. Uh, I'm sure it was to many people. Um, But during pregnancy, you know, to just see the like mass consciousness suddenly realize that they're going to die. And I mean, that's true. And we should all talk about death more. But anyway, it just kind of added to this whole death consciousness thing that I was already in. Uh, I remember being in the shower one night when I was pregnant with him. I don't remember how many weeks it was. It was probably still quite early, you know, first trimester kind of time. And I heard Rumi's voice for the first time. And I knew, again, um, you know, I hadn't miscarried after that dream. But I knew it was a different soul. I had felt that almost immediately. Once I realized the pregnancy was still here and growing, um it was very clear to me that whatever soul was in there had left. And this was Rumi, and he still didn't have a name. But he started to have a voice not as strong as that first one. And his voice wasn't that strong the whole time. Like I said, he would have periods where he kind of checked out, and I could feel that his soul wasn't in his body um, when he was in me. Uh, So I heard him say, you know, I think I was thinking about Sable and you know, more, more about death and all of that. And I heard him say, I am not my brother. And I remember writing it in my journal and just, you know, I kept kind of coming back to that. Yeah, you are not your brother. And at that point, of course, I did not know he was a boy. I did not think he was a boy. And it feels even more special now, knowing that he said that to me and Sable is his brother. And That's one of his only brothers. And truly, I never thought I would have another boy after Sable. It just felt like maybe I don't do that anymore. Maybe my body can't, you know, 
have a healthy boy, um, all kinds of crazy thoughts. And so I think that's part of thinking he was a girl is just not even consciously wanting to engage carrying another boy and what that could mean or not mean. But not his brother was very accurate. He's very much not his brother. Um, and we don't even know, you know, I don't know all the ways that Sable would have been Sable. He would have been five about now, but, you know, not to be. So that was kind of a lot of the early pregnancy stuff. And that feels sort of normal to me. And I feel like it definitely got more esoteric and more on the spiritual path as we proceeded in the pregnancy. Um, I started working with kind of a spiritual mentor slash coach slash I don't even know what to call her. And I've talked about her on on several podcasts now. Uh, But her name is Donna Maria. She's an older, wise woman. And she is the container, which is a funny word, um, for just so much knowledge and wisdom over times and over lifetimes and over cultures. And, you know, it wasn't an accident that Rumi brought me to her during this pregnancy. So I met her around that same time that um, I did my session with Amber. So around 14 weeks, I did Donna Maria's six-week course. That was the first I had ever heard of her, the first I had met her. And that course um, called Emotional Intelligence, which she offers every now and again, totally changed my life. And I felt drawn to continue with her. So I didn't really have a relationship with her personally, other than being in the class at that point. And I emailed her and I just said something like, how do I work with you? And I don't think I've ever said this to anyone. Um, you know, I've, I've thought about the desire for a spiritual teacher for so many years, but I've never really put the word out, you know, sort of energetically. Um, and I think that's a hard role to fill when you're someone that's like actively doing the work. Like, I don't know, it it was going to take an amazing person to come into my life for me to say, yes, it, you know, I want to learn from you. Not that I don't think I can learn from lots of people, but I think especially spiritual guidance, I've always been cautious about who I ask, you know, there's a lot of people I don't want spiritual guidance from, I mean, they're working their stuff out, which is cool. But you have to have someone that knows their stuff and is in a position to guide someone else. So um, that was the message I put out to her. And surprisingly, she was like, Oh, I've never thought about it. But I'd love to mentor you. And so we got started with a 13-month mentorship. Um, I'm about, I don't know, halfway through that. And I don't know what will happen after that. That's a whole other thing. But so far, it's been absolutely life-changing. And everything I have ever sort of wanted for my own spiritual evolution in this life thus far, uh, due to her guidance. So... You know, I don't even know how to sum that up, except that so much of the work that she and I were doing was part of his story. And a lot of that will just remain my own because it's too much to explain. And I have literally journals and books and all kinds of things around um, the experiences of my own power, essentially, that I've been able to have during this last time, um, especially working with her. 
So, you know, some things that come up um, around inner power is this belief in our bodies, uh, mine in particular, and, you know, uh, one health condition in particular I've lived with my whole entire life, which is asthma. And I think I've mentioned that. And just working with her and digging deep and uncovering the belief systems and the psychology around how our bodies hold things like that. And for me, sort of the the short version here, and this took many months and is still a project, is that a lot of those beliefs are just that um, this this physical condition I was told I had since the age of four is actually not physical. Uh, It's psychological, and it has to do with what I'm feeling, um, fear in particular, and it has to do with being empathic and picking up on other people's vibrations. This all manifests in my physical body, and I feel like a kindergartner in a way, like being aware of my own body and what it's capable of in both directions. It's capable of ultimate healing, and it's capable of self-destruction, um, And, you know, I'm not focusing on that part, but just that's our power. That's our power is that our belief systems and our feelings and our thoughts really do create our reality. So this was one of the primary lessons I, you know, I essentially taught myself with her guidance. Um, I definitely don't think she would say she teaches anyone anything. She really is in a position of helping me to remember all the lifetimes of knowledge and wisdom that I have. And, you know, many of us have. Most of us have uh, specifically around this kind of thing and being at this pinnacle, is that, is that a word? I don't know. Um, this point in history where we're needing to create our reality. We're needing to do it that way. We're, we can't just watch what's happening in front of us and get angry and want to go live on an island somewhere. I mean, that is the reflex. I, I've had it. But ultimately, if we're going to live in this world, and we're going to raise children in this world, and we're going to remain positive and want to love and enjoy our lives, um, then we need to create the reality we want to be in. And if you read his birth story, um, that's more than what actually happened. Like, I'll talk about that probably in a little bit. But we actually created a different reality. We, we made one that really doesn't exist. And it wasn't just in making it so you could see the photos on the blog post, which are really awesome. Um, it was a feeling. It was a feeling. I was there in this hospital, but there was nothing strange about it. There was nothing I had to bat away. There was no antagonistic anything. There was no negativity. There was no fear. I was completely in the bubble of love and protection that I would have had here, right here on the floor. Um, Nothing was different. I created exactly what I wanted in a place that surprised me. (laughs) Um, So anyway, these were not new realizations during my pregnancy um, or the birth. You know, this was a continued cycle of the same lessons over and over. So before his birth, um, you know, I I work with her every two weeks. So of course, we had many sessions. And I'm probably going to talk about some of the other things that came up. But just since I'm on a roll, um, as we got close, it felt even more like I was preparing for stuff. And I had had two other sort of scenarios in life 
that were worth talking to her about and working through and felt like challenges. They felt like some really huge physical and spiritual challenges. And so, you know, I received, I think, those insights, you know, our, our, our power does come through, I think, in challenges, a lot of the time, that's how we get our message. And as Donna Maria would say, sort of the harder the challenge, the more power we're holding behind that. And so, yay, I had these things happen. And there were two of them, two um, scenarios in those weeks prior. And I'll never forget her saying, there's a third, there's a third initiation coming. And what you've learned thus far will be needed. And she didn't know what that was. I didn't know what that was. Of course, a little part of my brain was like, huh, this birth initiation. Hmm. But there was nothing I could do to prepare other than what I had been doing. So again, um, just some maybe awareness that something was coming. And then right before his birth, I think it was the session I had before his birth, I really expressed to her that I was feeling fear. And, you know, it doesn't make sense rationally. And this was definitely a part of the lead up to his birth. Um, I felt like something was going to happen. And some of my brain, as I've expressed so far, you know, thought maybe it's him, maybe he doesn't want to be here, you know, I don't know what kind of challenges is going to be. And I would get myself in the right mental space, emotional space as much as I could every day, I was spending literal hours outside on the land, um, which is where I felt the most peace and where I knew Rumi felt peace. And in those moments, it all made sense. It was just breathe, just be in it, you know, let go, let go of this control. I mean, you could sort of know if something is coming or not, but just there's nothing you can do, you know, just be in it. And if you're, if you're breathing, um, you know, and, and I've had these experiences, hopefully there will be as much grace involved as possible. And he's totally just sleeping on me like a little angel, because that's what he does. So yeah, I expressed this fear. And, you know, she asked questions, what are you afraid of? And I had to try to find the words and she's really great at asking questions. So she kept kind of drilling at it. And what it came down to was I was afraid of the pain, which was so surprising and so humbling. Um, do I not have a podcast on how I had no pain with Cove's birth? I totally do. And I totally did. I didn't have pain with her birth. So, you know, yet another paradox of like this human experience, we can experience all of it. And they're all true. Every possibility is true. And so here I found myself feeling like, how can I be scared of pain when my last birth wasn't painful? But I just kept having it come up where I said, I would say to myself, what if I can't do it? Um, And I said this to her. And of course, she said, what do you mean? You know, you've had nine babies. And of course, you can do it. And it felt like I needed that reminder. But there was something emotionally that wasn't grasping that my brain could wrap around that. Yes, totally. I've had nine babies. I've done this. Why would I be afraid? Done. But no, there was something in me that just, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I see this happening. And that was the other thing. I didn't know 
if he was going to come out of my body. Um, and that sounds just really dark, but it was a feeling. It was like, I don't know. Um, I looked around this room and I have a lot of stories about this room. We had prepared this brand new room for Rumi's arrival. I uh, mainly for me, my, our house is getting tiny. I couldn't imagine laboring and birthing in the same room that the last few have been born in just because there's like no privacy. So we created this beautiful room um, outside of the house in this like guest house space. So I was working really diligently the last couple months on decorating and getting it all ready. But yet there was this feeling that he wasn't going to be born here. And I really wrestled with it. I did ceremonies in here. Um, I cleared it myself with all the things. I talked to the ancestors that were here. Um, I felt, you know, the other spirits around and things. And and there wasn't anyone, you know, human or not human, to tell me that it wasn't going to happen here, but that it would all be okay. But this was the sense I got. So, you know, even the detail of this room, of course, can't see it on a podcast. It's really cute. And we have our bed and our little daughters have another bed. It's quite a big room. And there's this space next to my bed that really was the only spot I felt like I could birth him because of the layout. But I just couldn't see it. I just couldn't see it. So I don't know. That's something I might learn more about myself in in times to come. Um, but certainly, I think midwives have this skill. And I think I've thought it maybe with other people, but I haven't given it as much power. Um, but even Margo, you know, in hindsight said, Oh, I had this weird dream that your baby was breech. And, you know, I think Jason caught him or something. But it was this kind of unsettling dream where she also felt as someone close to me that something was just slightly off and that it wasn't happening here. Uh, another good friend, um, you know, who's also a midwife, but doesn't live here said, you know, right before you had him, I knew or felt that he wasn't going to be born at home. And, you know, we could just say that that was coincidence. Uh, but I don't believe in accidents. I don't believe in coincidences. And yeah, I think midwives are particularly good at reading energy in a space and, you know, we don't make predictions like this to clients. We don't say to them, hey, I can't see your baby being born here. We might not even acknowledge it consciously ourselves, but somehow, you know, we have it in there somewhere. Um, and it usually makes sense, you know, when people do transport or whatever. Uh, most of the time, as a midwife, we're not surprised. We're like, oh, yeah, that's kind of what I thought. So it's weird to think that about yourself and to not know what the hell that meant um, and I always say to people, you know, I don't want to go to the hospital when I'm helping them plan for their births, right? We, we do talk about transport. And I would say to people, I don't want to go. I don't want you to go. But I know for me personally, I would only ever go if I thought I was dying or my baby was dying. That's the only time I would go. And I would trust that there was no other way. And, you know, I feel blessed to live near a hospital. I don't live in a third world country, for example, or, or somewhere else where there's like really no help. Um, I've always felt pretty balanced about it. I don't like hospitals. I don't ever want to go there, but it's not home birth at all costs. And if I felt like I needed it, I would go and I would trust that everything would be fine. 
and I would be grateful. And that's exactly what happened. And I did trust and it was fine. And I was grateful. So that's a second or third or fourth or fifth podcast um, just about, you know, that whole thing and transporting and, and the energy we go in with. And yes, Margo was a huge piece of that. And together, Margo and I are, you know, we're amazing together, obviously. Um, so having her with me was just double, double everything good. Uh, and we didn't expect any problems. And we were grateful. And, you know, we wanted everything to work out great. And that's what we got. So this is a very long, windy story. Um, and like I said, I don't know that anyone else really cares. But here I go with more stuff. Um, during the pregnancy, I had lots of weird things happen. Um, I had, you know, some some like spirit experiences, uh, talking with them. Um, some pregnancies have really been um, open in that way. And maybe if you're listening and you've been pregnant, you've had that happen where the veil just gets really thin. And of course, the time of year, you know, we're still in it. It's um, December 12th today. But, you know, this whole time of year, uh, he was, a, he's a Scorpio, he's born in Scorpio season, um, kind of have this decline and this infringing darkness and this more transparent veil as we get to solstice, which is December 21st. Um, so also the time of year was supporting this whole sort of crazy experience of, like I said, being contacted by ancestors, um, dealing very concretely with ancestral shit, basically. Uh, and that, you know, might sound weird and funny, but I was being contacted by them. I was hearing a lot of their story and I was becoming aware of what I hold um, ancestrally in my own DNA regarding birth and fears and where that came from. And so part of me felt really relieved to know that um, just this fear of death cropping up in the birth process and feeling like, oh, I knew I know where that comes from now. You know, it's maybe not about him. And it wasn't about him. He was just bringing this all to the forefront, uh, you know, also for his own evolution to not continue to carry these things, even though he's a male, he obviously could carry these fears. Um, and the ancestors contacting me were definitely female from what I could feel and, you know, decipher. But they were they were sharing this from this perspective of this, you know, this, um, we hold stuff in our DNA from however many generations ago, we're not necessarily aware of it. And then we think it's ours. And we think we have to like problem solve and do this thing when really, they showed me part of it is just awareness. And, and saying, you know, I don't want to carry this anymore. Thank you. You know, you guys had these experiences, this trauma, which set in motion this ancestral pattern that would be passed down, but I'm done. And so I do feel conclusive with that. I do feel like there were strides made in shedding some of that stuff for my family, for my kids. Um, and, you know, part of me wonders if I hadn't, if his birth would have taken even some other turn, you know, that, that hinged more on um, those fears, and, you know, maybe brought them to pass. So that's really a long story there. That's as much as I'm going to tell about it. Um, but Rumi started to show his spirit 
about that point. So sort of mid-pregnancy when you'd expect. It felt like he was coming in more, like I said, and I wrote a blog post about it. Um, It was something about my babies from the stars. I would look out in the middle of the night because I'd be up a lot and I'd see the stars and I knew he was out there. It was a very strange feeling. He was out there. He wasn't with me, even though his body was in me and his body was fine and healthy and, you know, doing all the things his soul wasn't. So one night I remember just kind of talking to the stars and simultaneously talking to Rumi and, you know, just kind of being in this veil state of you're out there. What is that place? You know, where do you come from? And I'd call him back. And this happened many, many nights, um, even though that continued to be a pattern, honestly, up until now, up until he is or said uh, his whole pregnancy, he would go out at night. And it was really disconcerting, even though I knew what was happening. um, There were many nights where I was just up sort of feeling anxious or nervous because he wasn't with me. And so that one night I looked out at the stars and called him back and I could feel it. I could feel him come in. And, you know, this is just one example, I think, of the amazing connection we have with our baby souls, even before conception Um, And the amazing connection I feel like I have with him. So, you know, it didn't make my human brain feel any different, which was just this strange place of feeling like things were, you know, hanging by a thread. Um, It was that coupled with this deep connection and intuition and awareness that this is what his soul, you know, was going to do at this point. There was no controlling it. There was no telling him not to do it. Um, I could be worried about it in my head, but my feelings were always that when I would connect with him, everything was fine. But again, with this awareness that he had this pattern of kind of going out to the stars and coming back. So that was one way he started to come more into his little body. And he's definitely in his body now as a baby, which is really fun. Uh, One fun thing about that is that when I was pregnant with him, like I said, I felt like he wasn't with me at night. And I would go on my dream path and some nights, very randomly, I would sleep really hard and I'd wake up and I'd be like, oh my God, I mean, I'm pregnant, but where's my baby? It was a very strange feeling. Like I was going out one way and he was going out another. And then I would be anxious, sort of like getting us back together or, you know, watching him come back in. And now since he's been here with me, um, he's sleeping next to me, of course. And when I dream... He's in my dreams. He's him. He's a baby. So it's it's like so sweet at once. It makes me want to cry because um, now he travels with me. And I, that feels really, really special. And God, I mean, why do why do souls take the time they do to do whatever they do? I don't know. I don't have the answer. And with all my babies, I've had different times that they've come into their bodies. Um, so anyway, that's a whole that's a whole topic. But that was his pattern. Um, about his name. Yeah, if you know who Rumi is, I don't need to say too much. But the way his name came in was probably around 20 something weeks. And prior to that, in my journals, and sort of in my head, I just called him magic, I called him baby magic. Because that's what it felt like. It just felt like absolute magic that he was in me growing Um, And so one day I was reading, 
I don't know, I was reading something, <laughs> a book. And in the back, there was, you know how they put those like one pagers about another book that the publisher offers. Um, and so this other page for another book was about Rumi. It was Rumi poetry. And you know how you just know when you know. That's how it's been for me with baby names. Either I hear them or they come in dreams or I just know. So I saw that and I knew. I was like, oh, that's your name. And for some reason, um, Soul had always been this other name. But I knew it wasn't the first name. Um, but there was something there that whenever I would close my eyes um, or feel into it, Rumi or this baby was this bright yellow color. In fact, he's wearing it right now. He has lots of things this color for that reason. But there was something so bright and you know, so sunshiny about him that I knew soul was part of the name. So when I saw the Rumi book advertisement, I knew that was his name. And I knew soul was his middle name. And truthfully, had he been a girl, um, the name would have been the same. I knew that was this being and immediately felt this peace. And in my communication with him, you know, just the nonverbal stuff you do when you have a baby in you, I knew this was his name. And it was very exciting because I never know where these names are going to come from. I have a whole other podcast on baby names, our baby names. So if you're curious, you can listen to that. But um, I don't look up things in baby name books. You know, that's all cool if it works for you. But I've never done that except the first time. Um, I've never done that since I've been aware that they tell you. My babies have always told me. So it was super special. And then um, his sister, Amelia, who's our oldest, who's also a Scorpio, and he was due right near her birthday. In fact, they're only a few days apart. Um, she said from the beginning, it's a boy. And I argued with her <laughs> many times. Uh, but she has a pretty good track record. She dreamed of Cove being a girl right before she was born, the morning she was born. So I, there was a little bit of me that definitely thought she was right or trusted her. And um, let's see, a couple months before he was born, she woke up and she said, Mom, I had this dream. You had the baby and he's a boy and his name is Soul. And I tried so hard not to have any expression on my face because our cardinal rule is that we don't tell the kids the name. We don't tell them the initial. We don't even speak it out loud. It's this sacred thing, their name. And all of them have been treated the same. So nobody's name has been known to them before birth. So I couldn't give in. And if I had, oh my gosh, I don't know. I wouldn't have been able to name him that because it would have felt just wrong uh, but she said it and she told me again the next day for whatever reason. And I just thought, wow, like you are a powerful little soul. And when you're here, man, you're here and you're telling everyone. Um, another fun thing that happened was as I was decorating this room, um, I had some help a la this decorating firm online, which was really fun. That's another thing. And they picked out items for my room. And they picked out um, these pillows and the name of the pillow is Rumi. So again, I didn't tell anyone, but I ordered an extra one just for fun. And I thought, you know, it's just another sign. It's just one of the other fun signs along the way that we were on the right path. And then my husband, I didn't tell him the name. Uh, I never tell him. Well, maybe I have, honestly, with some of the, the younger or the older kids, but I, with the last few, it's been sort of him guessing, which is really fun because why not? And 
you know, it takes the time it takes to guess, maybe months, although Jason is really intuitive and good. And I think I've shared that. So um, I kind of left it up to Jason to guess and I don't give any hints. It's not that kind of thing. So it's like all the names in the world. (laughs) And he has to guess from them. So he had trouble for a while. And I think it's just because Rumi wasn't really communicating. And um, Jason says he had a funny way of communicating anyway, which was just sort of in this like indirect way. So not like direct communication. Um, But he did eventually. And one day, just one day, not long after Rumi had told me his name, um, Jason sent me a text of a Rumi poem. And it literally made me cry. I can't even remember where I was exactly, but I read it and I thought, you know, yeah. And he knows. And how cool is that? So um, that was his way of saying that he knew the name. And I was trying to find the poem here just because it's like, really, I mean, all of Rumi's stuff is pretty beautiful and potent. But um, I was hoping to find where I had saved this because, yeah, it was really special. So that's how Rumi has communicated with us and with his dad. And I think that's even cooler, you know, not knowing he was a boy, um, that he was, Jason was going to have another son. Thus far, Rumi has blue eyes like his dad and no one else does. None of the other boys do. Um, So there's definitely something special with Jason that he's held the whole entire time. Oh, so I found it. So this is the Rumi poem that Jason sent me um, to tell me that he knew Rumi's name. This is how I would die into the love I have for you as pieces of cloud dissolve in sunlight. So yes, totally going to make me cry. And you know, what does that mean? So many things, you know, for me, as far as Rumi goes, and even Jason goes, and um, I'm not going to go into this now. And it's also sort of personal, but just how our relationship Jason and I changed through this pregnancy, and it was all positive, and it was all good, and it was all powerful. Um, We had some, you know, experiences together that felt just really big. And he also felt like something big is coming. This kid is gonna kick our asses. <laughs> and he totally did. And and Jason's life um, is totally changed due to his birth um, in ways that seem unrelated. But knowing him as well as I do, I know are kind of like all the pretenses have been dropped. Um, both of us are in a new place of self-responsibility. I think both of us care even less what people think and we care even more about what we're doing for us and how that feels and if it's right. And yeah, so those are some of the minor and major profound lessons that have come through for both of us. So Rumi was equally connected, I think, to both of us. Maybe not equally. He probably was more connected to me, but Jason was definitely getting some good communication from him. Um, and we had this whole sort of really bizarre experience around a house we were going to buy, uh, that almost happened and then totally got shut down and sort of blocked in this way. And initially just, you know, as a human, I was totally disappointed. It seemed like a really great house and, you know, all the reasons why it would have been awesome. And then through some communication, Um, with Rumi and our ancestors, um, it became clear to me that Rumi had actually blocked 
this from working out for some karmic reasons um, and for reasons that won't even really make sense. Um, But just to say that he was very powerful in the womb in this quiet sort of way and knew what he wanted. And he did not want to be born in that house. And like I said, karmically speaking, um, he was trying to tell me that there had been a contract, um, you know, sort of like a soul contract with these people that had owned the house that was now being um, like severed. And Rumi coming in was the one who was able to break it. So it wasn't a great con. I mean, contracts are contracts, I guess. But, you know, it wasn't a favorable contract. It was kind of being indebted to people. Um, and he was breaking it with his new, you know, this new paradigm of humanness with his power and was kind of setting us free. So it was an amazing realization to have because like I said, purely human manner, I was pissed, I was annoyed, I wanted this house to work out. And then Rumi brought me this awareness that not only was it perfect, but it was beneficial. Um, It wasn't what I wanted, but it wasn't meant to be. And so these were the crazy things that I was experiencing all the time. So as we got closer to birth, I've talked about some of those feelings and thoughts and, you know, processes. Um, We did move into this new bedroom. That's where we sit now. And, you know, I already talked about a lot of that, but there definitely was, and and I think still is, um, this kind of like protective spirit in here. And I had cleared the room from anything that would be, you know, not welcome. And this spirit remained. So I took it that it's, you know, beneficial. Sorry about the dogs barking. This is what I get when I'm not at my office. Um, And one day I was taking a nap um, in my pregnancy, which was a common thing to do in this new room. And I woke up and there was this man standing over me. And at first I thought it was Jason, but it wasn't. And, you know, they kind of vanished. And I was like, whoa, that's interesting. Um, We had some other weird things happen in the room, just kind of signaling that there was something in here. And one night in particular, probably three weeks before he was born, a peach pit appeared on the floor. And this is a room that had been scrubbed from top to bottom. Um, It was October. There were no peaches anywhere in sight. And, and it hit the floor like it had come from somewhere when I was in here at night with the kids. So at first I thought it was like a stone or something and the kids had brought in. But no, it was this weird peach pit. And I just laughed and I thought, what on earth? Like, that makes no sense. So I Googled something, you know, um, something like meaning of a peach pit. And one of the pages to pop up was like this kind of shamanic site and it it had like legends and myths and it said like a peach pit is like a lucky rabbit's foot and um i i can't remember the exact wording but something like um something about like this could be you know used during childbirth um and means that a baby will be born as if by magic And I was just floored. I was like, man, this kid is communicating all the time. 
in the most profound ways. And yes, he is. He's absolute magic. Human brain said, oh, good. This means everything will just be totally simple and like I expected. And, you know, he's going to be born right here. And I did. I felt comforted by that. I was like, well, that that's going to be the magic <laughs> because what else could that mean? Well, little did I know that magic was going to be a whole other thing. But I still have the peach pit and it's in there and, you know, it's kind of on a little altar because that was very profound and very strange. Um, a couple days before he was born, similar thing. I think I was taking a nap and I woke up to a baby crying and, you know, then it was gone um, and I knew he was getting closer and, you know, uh, I think a lot of these things are personal and fun, but a lot of it is stuff we're all open to as we get closer to birth. It's more being aware. It's more being accepting that you're not crazy. Um, you don't have to tell everybody like I am telling you, you know, you can keep it to yourself. But these are the things that I think many women experience as the soul comes close to grounding in. Um, so that's that. Uh, the birth story speaks for itself. And I guess I just have some comments, even though this is getting super long. But again, this is for me. So listen or don't. Uh, Donna Maria had an insight based on her experience as an elder that Rumi's heart rate, um, as I said in the story, went down really low. It was probably 60 to 70 beats per minute. And that is a half of what it should be, essentially. Um, that his low heart rate really wiped the slate clean, wiped his slate clean and gave him um, the ability to not come in with a lot of, you know, the ancestral shit and whatever I was, you know, also dealing with that he was made a clean slate and that that was something he intentionally wanted and needed to do. Hence, you know, it not being an accident. Um, clinically speaking, not a great sign. You don't want to hear that, especially for very long. Some babies will survive that, some won't. Um, but in a spiritual sense, it being perfect and it being sort of like this thing he needed to do. So that feels cool. Um, it certainly was divine magic when he was born um, at 3.33 a.m., which is a time of the Ascended Masters. And a time that can signify many things. Um, I took it to mean that I took it to mean um, a correct following of the intuition, because that's essentially what brought me to the hospital. Um, it wasn't fun to hear his heart rate that low. I won't lie and say I didn't feel fear. But I knew deep within me that the feeling was we need to go. My brain even now can wrestle with that. Um, was that the right thing? What if we had done this? What if we had done that? Blah, blah, blah. Nope. The intuitive feeling was go. And I know he needed that. And again, um, back to like an hour ago when I was talking, that makes me less likely to feel like when I'm witnessing another woman now that she should have done anything differently than she chooses to do. And of course, you know, we hope that women choose intuitively, or, you know, we, we hope they're connected. That's what we hope, right? Because choosing from fear is different. Um, but I know that was not the case for me. I have had years of practice, and I have had many months now of intense spiritual 
practice and guidance around these concepts around what I'm feeling and what I'm thinking and you know in a way that I can't explain all to say Rumi that there is no other way it could have been buddy Um, I know what you needed and you know I don't even know what that means it just that was what the path was for me and for him and so he was born at the hospital um, literally within minutes of getting there no one touched me other than to attempt to put a fetal heart rate monitor on which I don't think they even got Um, there were no vitals there was no exam I didn't wear a gown I didn't wear a mask I you know there wasn't even refusing I just didn't do any of it And I was pushing all the way there and, of course, hoping that he was going to be born. As we got closer, I felt like it was probably going to happen because I could feel him moving down, which I hadn't felt for many hours. I had been pushing for many hours with no feeling of descent. And at 3.33 a.m., he popped out. And, you know, I'll never forget. I really won't. And it's a great memory um, hearing the doctor in the room say 3.33 a.m., Honestly, it was the first time anyone's ever called out a time at one of my births. And I was so grateful uh, because none of my other kids really had very exact times. So before anything could be messed with, um, he was born at precisely the divine moment that he had uh, wanted all along in his quiet little way. So I know this is getting long, but again, who cares? Um, I just feel like I want to find words for what this birth meant to me. Um, I don't know what it means to the world. You know, it's my story. And I know it's had such an impact on people. We get messages every day, uh, literally from, you know, this helped me to that helped me to wow, you showed me what it could look like to wow, that was a hospital, you know, the whole thing. Um, If you read the story, and watch the placenta video, we have um, me birthing the placenta in the hospital. It's a 50 second video on our Instagram or our YouTube probably better go to YouTube. Um, You'll see, you know, you can see for yourself what it actually looked like. But here, I guess I want to just talk more about what it felt like, because I feel like that's the part that is impossible for most people to grasp, rightfully so, when they're just reading the blog post. And most of us know firsthand what a hospital does and what it looks like. Um, It felt like complete protection. It felt like magic. It felt like I was in another reality that I had brought in, like I like I was in a bubble that I made and this bubble just got like plopped down and it happened to be on this hospital bed, which honestly worked fine. I mean, I birthed him and caught him in the position that I have used for many of my babies. I didn't feel limited and feel squished. I didn't even remember that I was on a table. Um, I was completely transported to my normal, you know, which is here, which is in my house, which is on my floor. Um, It was completely surreal to now look back and think, oh, my God, like I was within hospital walls. Um, There were people watching me. I didn't know they had they had scrubs on and masks on. I mean, there were machines. They didn't touch me, but there were machines that beeped in the room. Right. Um, For other people. Uh, all of the things like I look back and it doesn't make sense. It's like, it's like two things that just don't go together. Um, so if I hadn't experienced it and if I wasn't still, you know, as close to it, there's part of me that almost didn't believe it happened. 
I have Margot as witness and I have these photos, so I know it did. But the feeling was just nothing like you'd expect. Um, like I said, people have asked questions. How did you do this? How did you refuse that or this? I didn't do anything active, but I did enter with all the things I've talked about, all the experiences I've had, um, a true knowing of my own power, both physical and spiritual. And that was, you know, obviously a whole other thread of my pregnancy. Not only was I having these realizations, but the ultimate realization was my own power and how I use it and where I hide it and when I'm afraid to use it and, you know, all of the things. So this was a culmination. This was the ultimate vision quest for me at this point in my life. This was, you know, the end cap or, you know, a very, very um, amazing point at this juncture, junction, sorry, trying to nurse. Um, for this spiritual journey. So that's, again, you know, kind of back to the beginning, not to, I won't reiterate everything I said, but just how can anyone else really understand? I mean, you can't, you can only try to understand what I'm saying. And you can only trust, right, that that's the case, that this wasn't a matter of the physical, right? He had a deflexed head, he was trying to get into my pelvis in the wrong way, blah, 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 blah. What does it matter, right? That's the way he wanted it. And I think it is cool to speculate about why or, you know, if I'm going to a birth, how would I recognize that? How would I do that? But ultimately, it was to be what it was to be so that I could have this experience. And I'm not at all sorry. And again, people that, you know, have made the comments, like I've said, even even well-meaning comments of like, oh, that must have been so disappointing or like, oh, you're a midwife. That's unexpected or you know, you run indie birth, how could you have a hospital birth? What? Like, how could anybody know what kind of experience I needed? Right? And are we that sort of like, arrogant around birth that we think we know, or we think, I don't know, like anything means anything. I mean, this is one damn long podcast. But if I kind of had to make another realization that I've had, and this definitely pertains to birth, it's that I just don't know anything. I mean, I do. I know myself. I know my own power. Um, I know how powerful I am. I know how to feel into what I want to manifest. But I don't control a lot of it. And I don't control what's needed for my evolution. Um, you know, my highest version of myself certainly knows. But me sitting here, I didn't know. I didn't know that was how it was going to go. Um, and I don't think I needed to know, you know, ultimately, that really wouldn't have helped. So he was born between worlds. He truly was. And this is something I'll tell him in fairy tale form. This podcast will be too long for him, I'm sure. Um, but I'm going to tell him that he's a paradigm shifter, that he literally shifted the paradigm. He created a color that doesn't exist on a palette we don't have. And he was born between worlds. And that kind of sums up, you know, his existence up until that point. He was in both places. He was here. He was there. He was everywhere. The Dr. Seuss book. 
Um, he knows how to navigate realities. He knows how to shape shift. He knows how to work the veil. And these are things I'm going to share with him when he's older. And I'm probably going to watch him develop into uh, his complete magical self, because that is some serious power. And it's not accident. And it and it's not me other than, you know, I'm his mom in this life. And, and we're together right now. But he's come in with such immense power. Um, although, yeah, I don't think it's an accident. I can totally, you know, um, accept that I'm his mother for a reason. And I'm so grateful. And we're so in this together. So it was absolute and complete magic. I don't think I can do better at explaining it other than it was surreal. It wasn't of this world. It wasn't anything you would feel it to be if you've been in a hospital or had a hospital birth. It was actually really perfect and beautiful. And there was nothing other than being there um, that I would change. No one said anything. No one did anything. They were kind and beautiful and warm and loving. And the room was dark and it was quiet. Um, I said on the other podcast, you know, in a lot of ways, it's exactly what I wanted because I had said I didn't want the kids necessarily in here for the birth. Um, I've loved that. I've had that. It's been great for them. I totally recommend it. But I just had something different on my mind this time. And I said that in one of my last podcasts about um, his pregnancy. It was the end of pregnancy spiritual journey. Because every podcast I did when I was pregnant was about the spiritual journey. I just had nothing else to say, apparently. But I had said that I didn't want the kids in here. I wanted to only pay attention to Rumi. And that's exactly how it went. I didn't pay any attention to Margot other than to say, get the camera. Um, I wasn't concerned about her, what she was doing. I didn't notice what the hospital staff was doing or saying or being other than they felt cool. They didn't feel afraid. I was totally and completely present with my son. And that is exactly what I wanted. So I think that's another huge lesson is that not only can we shift realities, we can create them. And what we want to feel if we work on it and, you know, we are present with the feelings, um, we will likely manifest that. Do we control every detail? Nope. Uh, you know, do we control where the feelings happen or, or whatever? What scenario comes forth? Nope, we don't. But there's a lot of grace in being present. And, you know, I don't know what more to say than that. So um, that's about all I have to say, which is a long, 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 long time about his birth. And um, I guess a couple of words just about the clinical aspect because people have asked. And I'm not going to spend time on this more than a couple minutes because if you're not a midwifery student, it might not even matter if you don't have the knowledge and maybe people don't care. Um, but Rumi was probably in my body with his head deflex. So instead of tucking his head and making that diameter really small and nice, um, it was probably what we call an anterior deflexed brow. So he was anterior, he wasn't posterior. And I, and I knew that because I've had posterior labors. Um, but sort of the gist is my body started to push him out when my body wasn't quite open and he was up high in my pelvis. So it's a reflex. And you know, that's, that's sort of a sucky reflex, I guess, in situations like that. 
as the body is trying really hard to get a square peg through a round hole, it's not going to happen. And so it was a matter of time and probably the ambulance ride that jiggled him into a better position that made him <clears throat> flex his head and rotate. Um, and before that, you know, he wasn't going to do it. He couldn't do it, perhaps if short cord, whatever. Um, who knows why, but he couldn't. And you can't fit into a pelvis that way. And uh, the heart rate essentially was a protective bradycardia. So yes, it was not normal. It was it was abnormal in the sense of that that wasn't normal head compression. His head was being squeezed in a really wacky way that was causing him to be stressed. And I've talked to many midwives, elder midwives in particular, about that um, just because I wanted to know more. But you know, the matter of time that a baby can survive even a protective mechanism like a low heart rate, it's up for grabs. And, you know, that's a choice people have to make intuitively if they know what's happening or, you know, with whatever tools they have. For me, yes, we listened. I had a fetoscope um, and then I listened with a Doppler. So I heard with both and I was not reassured and I knew that something was wrong. So I wouldn't say that was normal in labor. It was not normal. It was abnormal. Um, and I knew he'd come out, but I didn't know in what shape. And I had never felt my body try so persistently at birthing a baby with so little luck. And that was concerning to me because I do trust my body and I do know my body and I do know how it feels to birth, even though not every birth has been blissful or easy. I've had difficult births, um, not this difficult. But anyway, uh, it was not normal. And the force with which my body was trying to get him through in that impossible position was frightening. Uh, and without going on another long rabbit hole, feeling that sense of I'm going to die because I actually said those words to Jason, at least I might have said them to Margo, too, um, was very symbolic. And I think, you know, in my spiritual meandering since, um, things did die, you know, and I think we could say that in general about women when they birth, something does die in them for them to give birth to their baby. It's not always that painful. Um, it's not always that symbolic, but something did die. And that's been part of my process is figuring out what that is. Um, ultimately, I think it was giving up control, giving up needing to have it my way in all the ways. Um, it was giving up, giving a shit what anyone thinks about anything and, and doing what I need to do to be my best self, to live my truth on this earth. So that all sounds really nice right now. And, and I'm totally sincere about that, but it's definitely come after many hours of introspection and, and tears, frankly, and processing to realize, you know, that was damn hard, but it wasn't in vain. You know, it was what was necessary. Uh, it was, it was what was needed. Um, and, and those feelings of, of pain and like I said, impending death, uh, were ultimately what I needed. So there are no accidents. There was no one that could have saved me from that, even though I really hoped there had been <laughs> at that point. Um, funny, but not funny, you know, earlier that day, I had my chiropractor there when I was still waiting for him. My waters had been open, I was having random hard contractions, but nothing, nothing was happening. 
um, she said, you know, I'm, I'm picking up on some fear. And I said the same thing. I'm, I'm afraid that he's not going to come out. And she was like, oh, you've birthed nine kids. Of course, he'll come out. But then she said, you know, what's the worst that could happen? And honestly, I don't know that this is the worst that could happen. But what came out of my mouth at the time was, um, I don't want a C-section. And she said, well, if that happens, you know, what, what will be the worst of that? And so it really kind of got me feeling it for a minute, which was a little scary. But I thought, well, if that has to happen, that has to happen. Like I'll, I'll, I'll survive probably most likely and I'll have to heal and that will be that. So there was something about her awareness there and my willingness. Well, it was, I was sort of kicking and screaming, but you know, at least minor willingness to say, okay, um, I surrender to this. That could totally happen just because I'm a midwife doesn't mean those things can't happen. And it was, you know, sort of a humbling and also an acceptance of what is, is what will be. And I had to accept all the possibilities. And so, you know, in a lot of ways, I think that played into the grace. I mean, what are the chances that I get there and he plops right out on the hospital table? When I left for the hospital, when I got in the ambulance, which was one of the hardest physical things I've ever done in my life, which is to push on hands and knees on a gurney all the way there, 30 minute ride. Um, I thought to myself, I might be getting a C-section and I was just okay with it at that moment. You know, I remember Margo saying too, and I don't remember cause I was totally out of it. I don't remember the exact wording, but Jason had asked her a question about as we were waiting for the ambulance, maybe packing a bag or I don't even know what. And she said to him, blah, 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 um, if she has a vaginal birth. And that was another, like, holy shit. Like, I'm here. I'm, like, actually in this, and I don't have control. It, it, it will be what it is. <clears throat> so I feel blessed. Uh, of course, I didn't want a C-section. Just as, you know, a physical being, that sounds really hard to recover from. But I accepted that if that had been my fate, then um, that would have been also the lessons I needed. And I definitely do think there's something for surrender. In surrender. This is quite a project here on this Saturday. Um, I think that's about it. We returned home from the hospital literal, literally two, two or less hours after he was born. Really, the longest part was waiting for Jason to come. Um, I think he had trouble like getting past security or something. It was like 3.30, obviously 4 o'clock in the morning. Um, but, you know, time sort of stands still when you've just had a baby. So I was just sitting there in my robe uh, holding my naked baby that was still attached to his placenta. And I was kind of in bliss, but I do remember feeling like, oh my gosh, I do want to go home. Um, So when he got there, I tried to get up and pee. That didn't really work because it normally takes me a while to pee after birth. So I just was like, let's get the heck out of here. And we left and he did not even sit in a car seat. Uh, He didn't wear any clothes. He was still attached to his placenta, which was in a bucket. He didn't even have a diaper on. And I cuddled him in a warm blanket all the way home. And honestly... I don't think he was any the wiser that he took a car trip 
and he has remained here in our house for almost five weeks and he will soon get to witness some births of his own so that's kind of exciting um, but our postpartum has been great and also hard i'm not going to go into all of that but initially um, having some breast infection issues which i think was definitely tied to all of this uh, running a fever you know is very symbolic of burning things away and it was in my heart area my lung area um, I think he needed whatever a breast infection brought and took away. And it just was another point of surrender for me. You know, breast infections suck uh, to sit here in pain, sweating and sort of crying and being miserable um, and just surrendering to all of it and life and birth. Um had pretty normal experience otherwise. Uh, I had some intense bleeding at one point. I think it was like day 12. Um, nothing is without meaning to me anymore. So, you know, just feeling my body kind of still deal with the intensity of that experience. I think our bodies carry it, you know, and, and even though I can make these spiritual conclusions, which I very much believe in, um, I'm still a physical being and my body you know, probably still needs to balance out and, and shed some of the old, um, the old experience and also the old me. So, you know, bleeding was another way and just kind of connecting with my uterus and, and feeling what was going on in there and feeling, you know, the grief that comes up after birth, especially after a birth that isn't quite what we think, you know, even though it's fine, even though the baby's healthy, right? We all know that kind of stuff. There's still emotion uh, trauma, you know, I think trauma is a possibility always. Um, I feel like I have some good support and skills and tools for not holding trauma. Uh, my miscarriage is something that comes to mind as something that did not feel traumatic, really, even though it was sad and hard. And I think um, this birth feels essentially the same way. Not that it was sad, but it was hard. Uh, but I don't feel traumatized and I'm working very diligently to not feel that way because everything that happened was essentially what I created and what I needed um, and working with my body and holding any of the, you know, clenchy patterns is something I'm still doing. Um, it was very painful to push him out and I and I need to probably work even further with my body on on some of that because it was a very many hours of doing something that wasn't working. And then, of course, it did work, but, you know, that. So I think that's about it. Um, I wanted to share uh, someone on our social platform, which if you're not a member, you can join for free. It's social.anybirth.org. Um, a lovely woman from um, Peru, I believe, sent me a little note that I wanted to share. She said, I wanted to share with you that Rumi in Quechua, our Andean's native language means stone, which in our tradition are considered elders as they store and hold all the memory of this earth. Um, and that is, you know, something I knew about Rumi from the beginning. Magic to me means that. It means the keeper of all kinds of things. And I felt that from him for from the very beginning. Um, I think that's about it. You know, there was uh, a lot of themes I think I could expand on eventually, and I'll probably do some writing um, just about, you know, the destruction that can happen to our, us, our egos. Uh, sometimes it feels like our physical bodies, 
our spiritual spirituality, uh, the destruction of birth and the rebirth that comes on the other side, um, the shattered identities that we can experience for sure. And, you know, in the case of Rumi's birth, I know that it wasn't change. You know, I love Danielle Laporte and she talks um, about how change is slow and uh, transmutation is a burning it down. And I feel like that was my experience in a nutshell, my pregnancy and my birth. And even now that this isn't change. This is, this is not something that's happened really slowly. It's been overnight or within minutes or within hours or days, you know, essentially short amounts of time. And it, things have been burned, you know, I've been burned and it's all good because um, there's new things growing. So I don't know, of course, and, you know, in many, in many ways, I don't really care what impact his birth does have. Uh, but of course, I do care as a midwife, um, you know, running indie birth, I think it does matter. And I think it's been really effective and positive hearing how even the photos have changed people. And, you know, there's always the the naysayers where those photos really challenge them. And they want to tell you, you just got lucky or you know, whatever it is, whatever negative thought pattern they live in, they want to put on you because it is, it's unbelievable. And I think Rumi has opened um, the people that are ready to the new possibilities. So, you know, am I scared of transport? No, um, not anymore. Am I, am I scared for other women that they can't have what they want? No, but I think there is always work to be done, you know, collectively. And I think on an individual level to create what we want, it doesn't just manifest out of thin air. It, it takes the lessons. It takes the work. Um, it takes sometimes these seemingly difficult initiations, um, but it can happen and it will happen if that's where we put our effort. So, you know, I'm blabbing on forever here, but it's not a matter of changing hospital policy. It's not a matter even of like prepping women better as far as like, well, when you get in there, you've got to get your birth plan out and, you know, don't back down and bring a doula. Yeah, those are all details that maybe people want to talk about. But for me, I didn't have any of those things. I didn't know I was going. I didn't think I would go. I didn't have a birth plan. Um, you know, there's lots of things that I was not prepared for. But it didn't matter because I had an intention and I had, oh, you're like sleep dreaming, baby, huh? You're sweet. Um, Yeah, I had what I needed and I'm proud of the work I've done to be able to get to that point. Um, You know, I don't necessarily think that that would be everyone's experience and I'm just grateful for it. I'm grateful for knowing my power. Um. And, you know, being aware of what I'm capable of, again, on both sides of the coin. And I'm looking forward to continue journey and lesson with Rumi, who I think is definitely one of my chief teachers in this life, um, especially until, yeah, he he goes off and lives his own life, which won't be for a little while. <laughs> You're stretching, buddy. So I will leave you with another Rumi poem because it's only, only appropriate. Yesterday I was clever, so I wanted to change the world. Today I am wise, so I am changing myself. What hurts you blesses you. Darkness is your candle. Oh, some parting words from Sweet Rumi. And thanks for listening. 
this was really long and I'd love to hear your thoughts. If you have them, you can send them to Marin at IndieBirth.org. I try to read every email and get back to it. So um, I'd love to get to know you more. And don't forget to check out that social platform, social.indiebirth.org. Put Mighty Networks, the app on your phone, and you will be good to go to hang out with us there. And that's the best place to find us for costumes. Have a beautiful day. Thanks for listening.